0: Good morning, everyone. Uh, so good to see all of you guys gathered here today. Um, my name is Jesse Holmes. I serve as the discipleship pastor here at Crawford, and we are going to be continuing in our series on joy by looking this morning in Philippians chapter 3, specifically verses 1 through 11. Uh, if you're using one of the black Bibles found in front of you, you can find our passage on page 981. So 981 here now philippians 3 finally my brothers rejoice in the lord to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you look out for the dogs look out for the evil doers look out for those who mutilate the flesh for we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of god and glory in christ jesus and put no confidence in the flesh though i myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let us now go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious God, it is once again that we gather to worship you and to sit underneath the teaching of your word. And so we ask that by the power of the Holy Spirit that you will teach us this morning. Will you open our eyes that we might see and understand and then apply the truths of Scripture to our lives, that we might not leave this place the same way that we came, but that we may leave refreshed and encouraged and challenged to walk more closely with you, in order that we might make your name known among the nations. So bless now, God, that you might be glorified and that your people might be encouraged. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you're just joining us, we are going through a series on joy. And we've said a lot of things about joy over the past few weeks, things such as that joy that we're talking about is not an emotion. We're not talking about an emotion, but we're actually talking about an attitude, an attitude that we see that is commanded, an attitude that we see that's expected, an attitude that is a gift from God. It's a benefit of being a believer, and so this morning, Paul goes back to the theme of joy and rejoicing, but now what he's going to do is narrow the focus. He's going to narrow the focus by helping us to understand why we place our joy or the foundation and the basis of our joy is in Christ alone. So as Paul continues in this theme of joy, he's going to continue by teaching this huge truth, that our joy rejoicing depends on a right view of who we are and a right view of who Jesus is. So our joy and our rejoicing is dependent upon having a right view of who we are and a right view of who Jesus is. Who or what we take pride in or boast in reveals what's going on in our hearts. And what Paul is doing is he's going beyond just saying, hey, rejoice, rejoice like me, rejoice in this, rejoice in that. He is honing in, he's saying, he's drawing a connection between the ability to rejoice well and our understanding of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. John Ross did an amazing job orchestrating this whole service because all of the songs point to this simple truth. And if you sung the songs and listened to the words, you should have picked up on this theme of, it's not about us, but about the person, the work of Christ Jesus. And so as we walk through our text, we'll see that our text is divided up into three parts. We're going to look at Paul's command, warning, and reminder. We're going to look at Paul's minor loss and greatest gain. And then we'll look at Paul's desire for Christ. So beginning now in verses 1 through 3, Paul's command, warning, and reminder. Again, it reads as follows. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now, you're going to see that the first word in chapter 3 is finally. You might be thinking, but there's another chapter. Like, how is this finally? And you might think, okay, is Paul one of those pastors that say finally, or this is my last point, and then there's like five more points afterwards? That's not what is happening here at all. Actually, probably a more accurate translation is not just finally, or so then, or now, or now. He's now explaining that he's turning the focus back to his original theme, and it's because of the previous passage. If you look at the preceding passage, verses 19 through 30, what Paul has done is diverge some from talking to the church, uh, talking about joy and rejoicing, to talk about his boys, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Both of these men have displayed outstanding character and faithfulness to the ministry, and Paul is giving them and letting the Philippians know, hey, I'm about to send these guys to you. So in the middle of uh, all of this, uh, this lessons about joy and rejoicing, Paul stops to then make an announcement about travel plans. Now, please know, this section is not to be thrown out. Like We're not to just ignore it or forget about it because he's talking about something different than joy. But in fact, it's an appropriate spot for two reasons. First of all, this displays and communicates that this is a legit letter. Understand, there was no FaceTime or cell phones, there was no running down the street and letting people know what's going on. Like, this is a literal letter. And so, a part of this letter is not just teaching high level theology and teaching deep concepts, but it is communicating truth, simple truth, like hey, I'm going to send the boys to you in a few weeks. Second of all, we see that the placement of Paul talking about what he's going to do with Timothy and Epaphroditus fits in with the flow of the letter. Remember what Paul was talking about at the beginning of chapter 2. He's building a case for humble, obedient love toward God and toward one another. And so it is fitting that in the middle of that, what comes to mind is Timothy and Epaphroditus that exemplify that. And so as Paul is talking about rejoicing in the Lord, as he's talking about unity among the body of believers, he's like, oh yeah, guys, I'm going to send Timothy and Epaphroditus to you. And these are two that you need to look to as an example of everything that I've been saying in this entire letter. And so it's not just a quick commercial break, but it's fitting that he mentions this. And so now what Paul is doing in verse 1 of chapter 3, he is picking up where he left off in chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, where he says, even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. And so what is Paul's command? So point point one, there is Paul's command, there is his warning, and there is his reminder. So what is Paul's command? His command is to rejoice in the Lord. And there's that prepositional phrase. I've told you I love prepositional phrases. In the Lord, he doesn't just say rejoice, but he says to rejoice in the Lord. And so this is much different than what we've seen before as he's just said to rejoice and to have joy. But he is trying to focus the attention of their joy on the Lord. Or in other words, he's saying, let your joy be resting on the Lord or let the Lord be the occasion and source of your joy. This is a huge theme that Paul is going to keep going back to, because if we place our joy or allow our rejoicing to be resting on anything other than the Lord, it will fall flat on its face. And so the thesis, the main theme is to rejoice in the Lord. Now why? Like why, why should our rejoicing and our joy be fixated on the Lord? You might already know the answer to the question, but I'm going to tell you, it's because Jesus has earned that right. He deserves for our our joy and our attention and our affection to be fixated on him. And again, going back to chapter 2, what does Paul proclaim about Jesus? In chapter 2, he says, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a certain servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Because of the work of Christ, this is what has happened. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. These are not just words, this is a reality of who Jesus is. And so do you see how throughout this letter, as we've talked about joy and rejoicing, Paul cannot think about rejoicing and having joy without thinking about the person and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Because as Jesus put on flesh, he was humbling himself, and he began walking toward the cross that he might be obedient to the Father, and as, as a result, he has been lifted up high. And so for we as believers, our joy is not resting on the things of this earth or the things that we have done or the work of our hands, but it's resting on the finished and sufficient work of Christ Jesus on the cross. And second, it's important to note, he says this to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So, what are these same things, Paul? What are you talking about? Well, there's two conclusions. The same things are referring back to rejoicing, like he just said, but it's also pulling us into something that he's going to talk about next, which is guarding the truth of the gospel by avoiding false teachers. So all of these things that he is about to explain, Paul is saying in verse 1, this is about to be really important. This is no trouble for me at all. This is actually really good for you. So hey, church, you should listen up to what he's saying. So next, well, what does Paul warn against? So remember, point one, there is a command, there is a warning, and there's a reminder. The command is to rejoice, and the warning is this, he's warning against false teachers, also known as the Judaizers. He's warning against false examples, false leaders that are surrounding them. Now, these Judaizers, um, they were encouraging the adherence of the Jewish rituals and traditions as a source of righteousness. So these boys are walking around saying, oh, that's great, you believe in Jesus, high five, but have you been circumcised? Have you followed this tradition? Have you followed that tradition and in a sense putting on extra weight and it messing up the gospel, diluting the gospel by adding works to it? Now reading in Acts you will find that these Jewish men were always walking around as if they were the goat, which is a hip word that means greatest of all time. And so these boys are walking around solely trusting in the work that they had done in the works of their hands, in their own accomplishments. And the reality is, what Paul is pointing out is, they are dangerous not because of the teachings, but also the teachings of their example. Because the reality is, we teach in multiple ways, not just with the words that come out of our mouths, but with the way that we carry ourselves, our character, our attitude, our behavior, how we treat one another. Therefore, what Paul is going to say over and over again is, look out, look out. And by saying look out, what he then does is he exposes the realities of the false teachers in a threefold description. First, he says this, look out for the dogs. Now, don't worry, Chase or other dog owners, Paul is not saying that dogs are bad. That's not what he's talking about. So you don't need to get rid of your dogs. You don't need to stop letting Chase train your dogs. That's not the situation here. But when Paul is talking about dogs, in the context of this culture, dogs were not like cute and cuddly. They weren't fun, like sitting on your lap, like hanging out and playing around. They were actually really disgusting, Uh, coyote-like, scavengers. They were dirty. They were hanging out in trash. They were disgusting. Flies were all around them. So in this culture, for Paul to refer to someone as a dog, he's not trying to invoke Fun feelings and happy memories. He's trying to make you say, ew, gross, no, no way. And what's also very ironic that Paul uses such a word like dogs is because what did the Jewish teachers pride themselves in? Well, one of the things that they pride themselves in was their cleanliness, being ceremonial clean, ceremonially clean, doing the right thing, being upstanding. But what Paul says, as he is trying to communicate the reality of these false teachers, he says, watch out or look out for the dogs. Or in, other ways, in other ways, he's telling the Pharisees, no, you guys, y'all nasty. You're, you're dirty. Why are they nasty and dirty? It's because their hearts were not in the right place. Their confidence were in, was in their works and not in Christ alone. Second, he says, look out for the evildoers. There's more irony here. So these Jewish teachers have been walking around boasting in the fact that they were accomplishing the works of God. Hey, look at me. I'm doing what pleases the Lord. Hey, look at me. I'm doing the right thing. Honor me because I'm walking in obedience. But what Paul does here, says, no, in fact, in actuality, what you're doing is you're serving yourself. You're serving evil you're not doing good, but instead you're doing evil. Why is that the case? Well, because you guys are modeling confidence in the flesh, and that is anti-gospel, that is anti-Jesus, that is anti-God, and therefore it is evil. Their confidence is in their personal works. And finally, he just uh, slams them in such a huge way. It all culminates with this, look out for those who, who mutilate the flesh. Now, uh, as Paul has been talking about circumcision, which is an outward sign of being the people of God, what Paul now does is he exposes these false teachers as being empty and without purpose. Because if circumcision was designed to point toward the reality of being in the family of God, when he says that they just mutilate the flesh, he is saying that their act of circumcision is empty and void of meaning. It's just mutilating the flesh. Why? Why is Paul speaking so harshly? You might have picked up on it. Because their confidence is in the works of their hands. Their confidence is in their flesh. And we're not saved by works of our own, but we're saved by the finished work of Christ Jesus on the cross. And so Paul is painting this picture in the reality of these false teachers just in case someone was thinking, I want to be just like that Pharisee over there. Man, I want to be just like him when I grow up. It's like, no, 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 you don't, no, you don't. They they're dogs. They are evildoers. They just mutilate the flesh. Not only that, but there is the reminder. So still point one, we have the command, we have the warning, and now what is the reminder? And the reminder goes along with the warning because he paints this picture of the false teachers. Here's the reality of the false teachers, and now, church, let me remind you of who you are. Let me remind you of who you are because you're looking at the false teachers wanting to be like them, but the reality is we, you, are the circumcision. And by that, he's saying that you are God's people. You already belong to him. You're already in the family. There's nothing else that you need to add to the sufficient and finished work of Christ Jesus. Ignore those guys that are adding to the gospel and then rest in the reality of who you are. And then he unpacks who we are by saying this. uh, We worship by the Spirit of God, meaning that the Holy Spirit dwells in us. If you are a believer today, if you have repented of your sin and have confessed Jesus Christ as Lord, the Spirit of God now dwells in you. And so as we sing and as we pray, they're not just words just floating around in the atmosphere, but through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are connecting with the Lord. We are communing with God. Not only that, but we glory in Christ. We don't boast in ourselves or in our own abilities or in our own accomplishments because of that first point being that we worship by the Spirit of God. All that we are and all that we do, all acts of obedience, has been done by the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And so a characteristic is of one that, has, uh, that is truly circumcised, one that belongs to the Lord, is that they glory in Christ. And finally, he says, They put no confidence in the flesh. Confidence in the flesh means that you are looking at what you have done and you are proud. Boasting can only be done in Christ Jesus because he is the one that has done all the work. We do not bring anything to the table to be confident in. So Paul is saying, don't admire their ways. Don't look up to them. Don't follow their examples thinking that they will make you right with God. You're already good. And your life exemplifies that. So Paul is speaking on rejoicing in the Lord. And he is trying to build up this case. And these false teachers are coming in and want you to rejoice in the things that you do. But I need to remind you to rejoice in who the Lord is. Second, to further his point, Paul becomes very transparent by describing his uh, minor loss and his major gain. Point two, Paul's minor loss and major gain, verses four through nine. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul is not doing a humble brag here. Uh, He's honestly not even bragging. What Paul is doing, like he's done before, he is saying, all right, guys, now I need you to look at me. Like, I've taught this lesson, I've explained to you these bad examples, now I want you to see how I demonstrate the truth that the Lord has given me. And so what he does is he uses himself as an example. And in this example, what he does, Paul is so awesome, he begins in a way that seems boastful, but is actually humbling, he's humbling himself And he's proving a point about the Judaizers in the last section. And these guys wanted to boast about the things that they were doing. They were saying, hey, church, look at me and follow my example because I'm awesome. And so what Paul does is he says, you're not awesome at all. Let me describe to you what awesome is. And that's where he gives this list that he has right here. So the logic is these false teachers are modeling confidence in the flesh, And if they don't pay attention, if the church does not pay attention, it will be easy for them to get swept up in this false gospel because of what they see these Judaizers' lives looking like. And so what Paul does is he breaks it down for them. He says, let me tell you about myself. So what I'm going to do is walk through each of these and explain to you why it's a big deal. First of all, what does Paul say? Circumcised on the eighth day. So Paul is describing a confidence in Jewish ritual. So why would this be a big deal? So we're imagining there is just like a church filled with people who grew up Jewish in the Jewish context, and they're listening to what Paul is saying. When Paul says that he was circumcised on the eighth day, they're like, man, he's not a recent convert. He's the real deal. Like on the eighth day, he was circumcised, which means he bore the sign of a covenant relationship with God. Oh man, Paul's legit. Well, Paul, tell me what else. Of the people of Israel. So he's boasting in or pointing out his confidence that could be in his ethnicity. Paul was a physical descendant of Abraham. And in this context, genealogy is extremely important. That's why you see genealogy mentioned so many times in Scripture. It was a huge deal. And so when Paul says that I am of the people of Israel, he says, I can boast in the fact that I can pull up the family tree right now and you'll see homeboy Abraham right up there. Everybody, be jealous. Can you see Abraham on yours? No, no, I can point out Abraham right here. Next, if that's not good enough, he says, of the tribe of Benjamin. So Paul would be able to boast in his rank. So Paul was not just from any old Israelite tribe. He was of a super awesome tribe. Jerusalem, the holy city where the temple was, so you know whose territory that was? Good old boy, Benjamin. Do You know what happened when the kingdom split? Man, was there a tribe that was like still loving the Lord? Oh, it was Benjamin. Benjamin became loyal. So Paul is saying out of all the tribes, Benjamin being of this tribe, I'm high ranking. Can these guys say this? Probably not. Next, he says a Hebrew of Hebrews. That means that he could be confident in the fact that he is keeping up with Hebrew tradition. So that means that he will pass a Hebrew class because he would be able to speak the language and read it well. He was not just grafted in, he did not just jump on board, but Paul did not abandon his rich culture and tradition so that when someone saw him living his life, they're like, ooh, he's not just a Hebrew, he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. Next, as to the law, a Pharisee, so he could boast in his rule keeping. You understand that the Pharisees were a sect of rulers that took pride in following rules. They would do, go above and beyond to prove to others that, hey, we are righteous because of the good things that we're doing. And Paul was a Pharisee. So that means that his lifestyle was evidence of being a good rule follower. Next, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. So he could boast in his zeal. So uh, zeal is a good thing, right? So if you are zealous for something, then that means that you are, like, making it known. You're going all out. You're, like, hardcore. Like, you—somebody thinks that they like Batman until they meet someone that is zealous about Batman. And, like, everything in their house is Batman. So there's a difference between being a fan and doing a few things and then actually being zealous about it. Paul is saying that I proved my zeal because I went door to door standing up for what I believed in. I knocked on these Christian doors and said, hey, are you worshiping Jesus? Blasphemous, come with me. And so he wasn't just a a Pharisee in word, but also in action. And finally, he says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He could boast in his obedience to the law much like the rich young ruler that when approached Jesus, Jesus says, uh, do these things, and he's like, I've been keeping the law since, since my youth. I've been doing this since day one. Paul could say the exact same thing. And so think, and you, you grew up in a Jewish context, and you hear this amazing list. You look at the Judaizers, and you're like, get out of here. I'm not looking at you. I don't want to pay attention to you. This is the man that I want to be like. And that is why Paul puts in this huge list. He wants everyone to look at at him. He said, don't look at them, look at me, and here's my long list of qualifications as to why you should look at me. He lived a life to where he could say to himself, well done, good and faithful servant. To himself, he could say that because of the things that he had done Confidence in the flesh means that you are looking at what you have done, and you are proud. But what Paul does right here next, beginning in verse 7, he flips the script. Someone listening to this might think, okay, Paul now wants us to be better than the Judaizers. He wants to be just like him, and he's just listed out all these things. Paul flips the script by saying, but, in verse 7, he says, But whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Yes, I I can have this long sheet of qualifications. I can explain all the things that I've been doing since I was eight days old. But when I look at the list of qualifications made by my own hands, they're nothing compared to who Christ is. I count this long list of human works. I count this long list of things that I have accomplished. I count them as a disadvantage. They're nothing to me. Why? Because of the person and the work of Christ Jesus. He says these things that man would think is a huge gain, they are but lost compared to gaining Christ Jesus as Lord. And so the value changes. The value changes. Side note, as we commit our lives to Jesus, the values in our lives change. They change. It's not the same. Because as a non-believer, the things that we valued, the things that we held dear, the things that we thought was worth something was of the world. But when Christ then changes our hearts and changes our mind, those things, the value of those things diminish over time. The reality is over time. And that is the process of sanctification. And as we grow in Christ's likeness, the things that we used to do as a non believer, man, they become less and less appealing. Not because I want to do right, but because Jesus Christ just looks better and better and better the longer we walk with him. But Paul does not just stop there by saying that it's nothing, that it's worthless. He says in verse 8, after giving this long list, he says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul doesn't just say that it's it's nothing, that his long list of things is nothing. He doesn't just say that the works that he had done is nothing, but he says that it's rubbish. Now, you might think that that sounds like a word that you would hear in Dalton Abbey, but in the Greek, what Paul is saying is not just rubbish, he's saying animal excrement or poop. He, this long list of things that all the Judaizers dreamed of being able to say that they did. He's like, look at this long, beautiful list that you would show everybody. Do you know what it is to me because I've gained something greater? It's poop. The thing that is super smelly. The thing that you avoid on the sidewalk. The thing that you make your teenagers clean up because they ask for a dog. Like, that worthless thing that you're getting rid of, Paul says that that is equal to all the works of my hands. Why? Now, get this. Those things are not worthless because those things are bad. Because in actuality, his list of things are not bad at all. And to be honest, Paul actually leverages all of his past for the sake of the gospel. It allows him to go to places that not a normal person would be able to go. It will allow him to speak to people that he would not normally be able to speak. But what Paul is getting at is, when thinking about worth, nothing in my past that I have done compares to having a close relationship with Jesus. Is that how you view your relationship with Jesus? That all the things in the past that you were proud of, all the nice awards and the plaques, the accolades, the experiences— Do they start to look more and more like poop as you grow closer to Christ Jesus? As you forget about the works that you have done and then focus on the work that he has done. Understand, Paul is not trying to uh, explain that there's an issue of loving things more than God. The whole point is an issue of misplaced confidence. And the equation that he's trying to spell out is that in order to rejoice in the Lord, your confidence has to be in the person and the work of Christ Jesus. And any time that we begin to place our confidence more on the works of our hands or the things that we have done, it makes it difficult to rejoice in the Lord. And then we begin, we begin boasting in ourselves. And so when Paul looks back on all his works— it does not compare to what he now has in Christ Jesus. Over and over again, as you see, as he counts something lost, it's compared to what he gains in Christ Jesus. It's counted as lost for the sake of Christ. It's counted as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He's explaining a personal relationship that he now has with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's his Lord. He counts it as lost counts it as lost over and over again because of the simple fact of gaining Christ Jesus. Our process of sanctification is not just growing spiritually, it's not just growing in knowledge, but it's growing us closer to Jesus. Have you ever thought about that? that as you read and as you pray and as you meditate and as you memorize and as you gather underneath the teaching of God's word, it's not just to make you a better Christian or help increase your knowledge, but it's to help uh, increase your affection for Jesus and help grow you closer to him because then all of those walking in obedience comes out of that love for the father. And so that's why we would say, man, if there's a young man or a young lady that's not walking faithfully, we don't need to get them lists of do's and don'ts. We need to ask them, do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? How's your love meter for Jesus? How can I help increase your love for Christ Jesus? Because for Paul, the more and more he loved Jesus, the less and less he wanted to look at the works of his hands. And so we ask ourselves the question, man, how is our walk with the Lord going? As we've been growing, if you've been a believer one year, two years, three years, 50 years, man, how does your past look? How do the, the idea of the things that you do, things that you will be proud of? Man, I've been coming to church every single day since before I was born. Man, I have all these verses memorized in the King James Version, Yes, I've led like 50 Bible studies. I've taught multiple classes and hermeneutics and church history. Are those the things that we boast in or find ourselves prideful of? Or is evidence of our sanctification the fact that, man, those things were just means to an end? I love Jesus. I'm grateful for Jesus. And if all these things were taken away, if everything that I've ever done or ever said and ever accomplished was burnt up, just having Jesus is enough. And so finally, Paul concludes this and he builds it all up. He's talking about uh, gaining Christ more and more. He then concludes with describing his desire for Christ. Paul's final point, Paul's desire for Christ in verses 10 through 11. This is what he says as he continues on. That I may know him, Christ and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death that by any means possible i may attain the resurrection from the dead the the reality is there's no question if paul had a relationship with the lord jesus christ there's no question. I mean, it's evident in his testimony when you read Acts. It's very clear as he shares the gospel. It's very clear in all his teachings. But what we see right here is that Paul was never satisfied. Paul didn't look back and see his experience on the Damascus road and be satisfied with that initial relationship with Jesus. But every single day that Paul grew and got older, Paul wanted more and more and more of Jesus. And so I could imagine, like, if there were uh, seminaries, like, multiple seminaries that taught things that Paul never knew, Paul would say, I got to go to that seminary. I got to read that book. I got to take that class because I want to know Jesus more. Now, the knowing that Paul is talking about, is not a head knowledge. That's not what Paul was desiring. I mean, because Paul knew a lot, right? He wrote most of the New Testament. But what Paul is talking about when he says no, he's talking about growing in a deeper relationship with Jesus. He just wants to be closer to Jesus. He wants to understand Jesus more. He wants to be able to relate with Jesus better. He wants to grow more and more in that relationship. And in that way, you know, our human relationships help paint a really good picture. When you're interested in someone or desire to know, to marry someone, steps toward that is to know them deeper, not to hang out on the surface and just know favorite shows and favorite things to eat. You want to understand, man, what makes them tick? Tell me about where you've come from. Tell me about where you're going, your hopes, your dreams, your fears. What makes you anxious? What are you super grateful for? And so as we grow deeper in understanding those things, you then in turn become closer with that person. And in the same way, this is the type of knowing that Paul desires more and more and more a deeper relationship with Jesus. And he, he sees that, he can gain that, by not just knowing him more, but knowing and understanding the power of his resurrection. Do you know what the power of Jesus' resurrection was? It's the power of God. It was the, the same work that Christ did, that God did through Christ when he brought us to life. So when you read Ephesians chapter 2 and in verses 1 through 3, it talks about us being dead and separated, and then verse 4 says, but God, being rich in mercy because of his loving kindness, even though we were dead in our sins, made us alive in Christ Jesus. That was the power of resurrection. And so Paul is saying, I don't want to just know Jesus more, but I want to have an even deeper understanding of what happened to me on that road to Damascus. Do you desire to know more about what happened to you when you repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus? Or you just want like God why me? Like why me? Like where did you get this power from? God, I'm so amazed by your work that I was far over here. I did nothing to grab hold to your attention, but you grabbed hold to me out of your love and kindness. But not only that, Paul wants to grow closer to Jesus by sharing in his sufferings. Sounds weird, right? To think that by suffering it helps you grow closer to Jesus? Kent Hughes says this, a commentator, the suffering, quote, the suffering that comes to a Christian, as a Christian, is not a sign of God's neglect, but rather proof that grace is at work in his or her life. Sacred intimacy. The reality is that if I am desperate to be like Jesus, and Jesus suffered, then if I am suffering because of sin, not because I'm doing bad things, but I'm suffering because of obedience and abstaining from sin, do you know who that identifies you with? Jesus. That's where uh, Hebrews chapter 12 is just so beautiful, as the author encourages the people, understand you have not suffered to the point of shedding blood. Be encouraged, because there was one that came before you that, that did, and he suffered because of sin. And so Paul was saying, I, mean, I want to suffer so that I might identify with Christ and understand him more deeply. Next, he says, being conformed to his death. I, mean, I want to die to sin, as Paul explains in Romans chapter 6. He points back to baptism and says that we are buried in the likeness of his death and then raised back to life. He says, I want to uh, identify and be conformed to his death to where I am dying to sin every single day. And finally, Paul's desire is that he might attain the resurrection from the dead. This does not mean that Paul was uncertain about where he was going in the end. That's not what this means. But Paul is talking about he is looking forward to the day when he can shed the earthly garments, and be glorified with Jesus forever. Paul is fixing his eyes on the future. And do you see how Paul is fixing his eyes on the future and then influences what he does today? And that is the reality of a believer. We're not just rejoicing. We're not just being joyful or glad and being excited. But Paul is talking about a rejoicing and a joy that is deeply rooted and being truthful about who we are, and I am a sinner saved by grace, a sinner that has been saved by grace, that still sins every single day, but then also understanding the truth of who Jesus is, the Son of God, the one that came down and lived a perfect life, that died on the cross for the forgiveness of sin that was raised back to life by the power of God so that who all believes in him might have life eternal and now sits on the right-hand side of the Father, making intercessions on our behalf. When we have a right view of who we are and who he is, all we can do is rejoice. I mean, the, the natural response is saying, Yes! Praise the Lord! Because I was dead, but now I'm alive. And as one that's alive, I'm not doing things to earn righteousness, but I get to enjoy the righteousness that has been placed on me, and it's one that does not belong to me, but it's one that is Jesus's. And so now as a believer, may I rejoice and I'm glad, not in me and my works, but in the Lord, and it's for his sake. Let's pray. Uh, Father, so often we are just so distracted by the things of this world, by our own accomplishments, by comparisons, by false teachers, uh, by desires that don't honor you. And so, Lord, right now, we just ask and we pray that you will help us to love you more than anything else in this life. And Lord, may we express that love and devotion by longing for more and more and more of you. And in those seasons of drought, Lord, will you make us hungry? Will you make us thirsty for things that honor you? And Lord, in those times of drought, will you send other believers to remind us of who you are, to remind us of where we've come from? And will you, by the power of your word and through prayer, will you encourage us that we might walk and live in a way that honors you, not because it earns us righteousness or gets us into heaven, but because you are worthy. Thank you for this time. It's in Jesus' name we pray.